This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. In a democracy, politicians' audience is their voters. They're accountable to their voters. Their voters decide whether they stay in office or lose their jobs. They address their voters whenever they're speaking publicly. In an autocracy, politicians' audience is always the autocrat. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest this week is Masha Gessen. They are a contributor and a staff writer to The New Yorker, where they're, I think, have been one of the key voices to try to understand Trump and the moment we're in and his historical and comparative analogs around the world. And, and one reason Gessen has been so good on that is they come from Russia, where they were a science writer who ended up being ejected from a magazine because they would not cover Vladimir Putin hang gliding with Siberian cranes. Saw that as propaganda, which it was, uh, but the state did not take kindly to them not covering it. The new book, Surviving Autocracy, is in part a collection of an expansion on columns and ideas Gessen has been building over the course of the Trump presidency. A lot of them are on language and speech and what words are and are not able to describe and what American political institutions are and are not able to protect against. One note before we get into the interview, Gessen was recording outside. You're going to hear some bird noises. There's a little bit of audio distortion on this one. These are COVID times where we're all doing the best of what we can. So I apologize if any of the audio is is not what we wish it were. Uh, but I think most of it is pretty easy to hear. And uh, the conversation, the substance of it is great. So here, without further ado, is Masha Gessen. Masha Gessen, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I'm a huge fan, so I'm a little intimidated. You, you've been here before. That's that's ridiculous. I have, I have been here before, but you know, I, I I actually listen to the show religiously every week. So uh, you've had you've had ever smarter people on every week since I was last here. So, well, that's not true, but it, it means a lot for you to say it. Let, let's go into your book, though, because uh, I've been very excited to have this conversation. One of the things that struck me was that this is a book as much or even more about language and its powers and its limits as it is about Donald Trump. And so I wanted to begin there. You write that the difficulty with absorbing the news lies in part in the words we use, which have a way of rendering the outrageous ordinary. Tell me about that. So I've been thinking about language a lot, obviously, uh, since Trump was elected and long before that. But uh, as as you might know, the book kind of began with a piece that I wrote right after the election, um, which was called Autocracy Rules for Survival. And the way that piece came about was that uh, on election night, I started getting phone calls and text messages from a lot of my friends asking, you know, what do we do now? Which was a little ridiculous because there I was living in exile uh, from Russia and, you know, I what could I possibly tell you about what to do when obviously whatever it was I did was wrong? But as I was riding my bike home that night from a very sad election watching party, I was thinking, is there actually something that I know? Like, is there, if I, if I had the task of writing a letter from the future, what would it be about? And 
And I thought it's it's broadly about sort of psychic and mental survival. It's you know it's not about how we overcome autocracy politically, but it's about how you live through it and remain an intact human being with the ability to form opinions and with a sense of dignity. And a lot of that has to do with language. So the piece I ended up writing and and a lot of the thinking that I was doing after that had to do with how the sense of living in a shared reality, the sense of um, of having the ability to to understand and express and communicate with others about what we're living through, how that's impaired in an autocracy. And Trump actually, for I, I don't, as you know, give him a whole lot of credit for political talent or anything really, except he has an instinctive talent for for language, right? And um, and there are a number of things that he does with language that I think are incredibly effective in in undermining the sense of, of of shared reality and and thereby undermining the very possibility of politics. One of the things I like about the argument you make in the book is I think there's been I would call it a crude version of this debate which is about whether or not you simply call a thing a thing. So do you call a lie a lie? Do you call racism racism? And that always strikes me a bit as a, the, the easy case, more or less. But something that you get at is this idea that we adopt categories of language and then misapply them. And in particular, drawing on, on the, the sort of post-Soviet bloc states, you argue that we have a tendency to use the language of liberal democracy to apply to things that are either no longer or never were or are becoming uh, or, or in the stage of leaving the state of being a liberal democracy, but that in applying the language of liberal democracy, we end up obscuring what they are or, or, or what they're changing into. So can you talk about that specific case about the way the sort of even terms of liberal democracy end up making it hard to talk about something that is no longer no longer is or is losing its shape as a liberal democracy? So this is an idea that I actually borrowed from a Hungarian political theorist, a sociologist named Balint Magyar, who is my absolute sort of intellectual hero. He's, he's somebody who has a way of writing about things that the moment you read what he's written, you're like, oh, well, of course, like how that that's obvious, except it wasn't obvious until you read what he wrote. So Magyar writes that in 1989, when the, the Eastern Bloc collapsed, we started using the language of liberal democracy to describe what was going on there. And there were two reasons why we were doing that. One was that we just assumed that that's what was going to take shape there. It was going to be liberal. Uh, everything was going to become a liberal democracy. It was the end of history. And the other was that that's the language of political science. That's what's available to us. In fact, what was happening there was not a liberal democracy. And the language got in the way of understanding that. Because if you talk about free and fair elections in a place where that's not even relevant, if you talk about freedom of the press in a place where, again, that's not even relevant, you're describing absences that are not even part of the same phenomenon that you're trying to describe. Or as Majer puts it, you can say that the elephant doesn't fly, you can say that the elephant doesn't swim, but that doesn't tell you anything about the elephant. And so he's been thinking this thought for a dozen years. He's the author of The Concept of the Mafia State, which I have also found extremely useful. But the work of his that I've been that I was using for this book is this thousand-page book that's coming out later this summer on post-communist autocracies. And so he proposes a very, very detailed taxonomy of post-communist autocracies and the stages that they go through which is autocratic attempt, autocratic breakthrough, and autocratic consolidation. And so I thought there's a kind of poetic justice to borrowing language from Eastern Central Europe to to try to describe what's going on here. But it's not just because it's 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 fun and, and pretty, right? It's um I mean this is how we sort of work out models, right? You take out a model that's been worked out for something and you see if perhaps it fits better than the words that we have been using. And it has a way of illuminating things that have been in the shadow, which I think is what what makes Magyar's model so 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 extraordinarily useful. But I think it also sheds some light on the fact that 
some of the concepts that we have been using here in the United States that weren't initially irrelevant, right? Maybe aren't particularly useful either as uh, as concepts or, or at least as measures. And, and so give me a couple of examples of that. What are terms we use in liberal democracy that you feel describe something we think we have and keep us from seeing the thing that we actually have or are actually becoming? So I think that, uh, and the, this dovetails with another idea that I, that I sort of take issue with, which is this American faith in institutions, which I think has a sort of religious quality to it. And what I mean is that is that we imbue institutions in the way we talk about them with sort of magical qualities, um, which are the qualities of, of self-repair and the quality of independent functioning. Right, is the institutions, American institutions as we imagine them are so perfect that they just work on their own and require nothing to make them work uh, or conversely, uh, nothing can stop them from working. They're so perfectly designed that they're independent of their context. I'm not saying that talking about institutions is useless, but I'm saying that Assuming that that institutions are imperfect, fallible, function only as well as they're enabled and allowed to function, is actually different than the way we usually talk about institutions in the context of liberal democracy, right? I mean, we do talk about weak and strong institutions, but we kind of don't question the idea that, uh, that institutions, if they function as they were designed, will always give the perfect result. The thing that seems to me to be deeply revealed is that there's nothing automatic about our institutions. And when I look at our record over the course of the Trump era, what I see is in some ways maybe an obvious lesson, but our parties cross our institutions. The Republican Party exists in the House and in the Senate and in the White House and in the Supreme Court. It exists to some degree in the media, in a lot of different places, in a lot of things we think of as institutions. And the institutions don't work if both parties don't want them to work. And so when I think about the institutional failure here, by the same token, that I think that, that it's a mistake to think about them as automatic. As you were saying, it really seems to me that the core institutional failure was on the side of the Republican Party, which many elite Republicans didn't want Trump to be their nominee. But once he was, and you document some of this in the book, they fell in line behind him in a deeply slavish and disturbing way. And you talk about some of these moments of, you know, Orrin Hatch saying he might be the Trump might be the greatest president we've ever had, that the Republican Party's rapid accommodation to what I would call at, least, at the very least, an autocratic aesthetic and sometimes autocratic behavior has been really scary. It's been absolutely terrifying. Um, and, you know, I have spent most of my professional life writing about Russia, where I have constructed all sorts of theories or used other people's theories about how this sort of behavior is conditioned over decades of state terror, of, of autocratic rule, uh, how this is this is an entrenched culture. And here we are in a country that uh, to which supposedly this is entirely alien, watching an entire political party that that holds a majority at that point in both houses of Congress just falling in line like they are the subjects of 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 of, of, of a tyrant who rules by terror which appends all of those theories. Um, but I think also shows something in, you, you're saying autocratic behavior or, um, do you say autocratic speech? Aesthetic. Uh, autocratic aesthetic. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Um, I would also maybe say autocratic mode. And what I write about in the book is that uh, I think that there is a difference of political audiences in an autocracy and a democracy. In a democracy, politicians' audience is their voters. They're accountable to their voters. Their voters decide whether they stay in office or lose their jobs. They address their voters whenever they're speaking publicly, even if it's ostensibly to someone else. In an autocracy, politicians' audience is always the autocrat because it is the autocrat who distributes power and often money. It is the autocrat who decides 
whether the politician keeps their job or not. And I think somehow in a matter literally of months, an entire half of our political life changed to the audience mode of an autocracy, right? Where the audience of a politician is the autocrat for that very reason, right? Because it's Donald Trump who can commit murder by tweet and cause any elected representative probably to lose his or her job. And so when, you know, when we see, when we saw the, um, that incredible celebration of Trump's signature legislative achievement, which is tax reform at the end of 2017, and it was an entire day of performances by members of the cabinet and by senators and representatives, and most remarkably, probably Orrin Hash, who's been in Congress for 150 years and said that this was the best president he had ever seen. That whole performance and that whole period of performance has been really scary for me. And, and to me, the, the scariest line in your book is this one. You write that the first three years, and you're speaking here of Trump's presidency, have shown that an autocratic attempt in the United States has a credible chance of succeeding. And the thing that has always been so striking to me about Trump is that he would make his own rejection so easy. He's crude in the way he goes about this. He's unstrategic in the way he goes about this. He alienates potential allies. He's never been a popular politician, never had an approval rating above 50%. He does not like help people out with fundraising in a, in a normal way. He betrays some of the party's core principles. He's not somebody who's been executing a long planned, strategic, careful, three steps ahead takeover of either the Republican Party or of American political institutions. And even in this very, in some ways, easy case, we proved unable to put strong boundaries on it. And you certainly saw at least one one of the political parties fall to it very quickly. And so to me, the, the the true nightmare scenario here has been not really Trump, who I've not, who after the first year or two, I think I came to worry less about him being successfully autocratic. I'm not even sure he truly wants a level of responsibility that would come along with being a successful autocrat. But our deep vulnerability to somebody who did want it and who was willing to be just mildly strategic. I mean, I think even say with Ukraine, given you mentioned impeachment a couple minutes ago, a president who had executed the same plan, but simply was smart enough not to repeatedly make the quid pro quo ask himself would have had none of the same problems. And that would have been a very obvious thing to do. And so just the vulnerability of the system now, like, I don't think it'll be Trump, but it made it very clear it could be someone. That's a great point. And and I think that the, the, the ultimate lesson, if this autocratic attempt fails, which I very much hope it does, um, and I should explain that in Majer's uh, terminology, which I use, an autocratic attempt is the first stage, and that is when autocracy is still reversible by electoral means. So at least until November, we're still in the autocratic attempt stage of this of this process. And then he posits that at some point there comes the autocratic breakthrough when you can no longer use electoral means to reverse the autocracy and then autocratic consolidation, where it's just consolidating ever more power and money and making it ever less possible to change. So if this attempt fails, if we vote him out of office in November and he leaves, I think that the lesson we need to draw is that democracy is always a process. It's always a negotiation. It's always a thing in the making. It's never the thing you build and inhabit, which I think is one of the fundamental misunderstandings of, of the concept of democracy that, that so many of us have had. One of the scary recognitions about that goes to this idea of automaticity or, 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 or lack thereof. You have a really interesting section in the book about the way we imagine history as something that happened to other people. History, both historical monsters like a Hitler or a Stalin and, and periods of historical crisis or strain, that we want to imagine that all of them had these deeply unique characteristics, an incredibly capable leader with, you know, beyond remarkable oratorical power or a society that was 
particularly vulnerable for one reason or another. And, and that you write that by sort of coming up with this idea where if this can't happen, then the thing that is happening is not it. What we see in real life, or at least on television, can't possibly be the same monstrous phenomenon that we've collectively decided is unimaginable. So could you talk a bit about how those two ideas connect, how um, how you can have terrible things happen in normal circumstances, which in some ways means you need normal behaviors that are attentive and resistant to terrible things? So... I started thinking about that, although actually this is something I've, I've thought about for years, but, um, but, but I was particularly thinking about this a year ago when, as you recall, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez used the words concentration camp in reference to child detention facilities at the border. And there was this immediate backlash uh, where she was accused of desecrating history and where even the, the Holocaust Museum sort of stepped in and said, well, you can't compare anything to the Holocaust. And of course, this idea that you can't compare anything to the Holocaust is essential to the historiography of the, of the Holocaust, right? We have collectively decided that what humanity created in the 20th century, and particularly between 1941 and 1943, was unthinkable, unimaginable, inhuman, never to happen again. And we have so absorbed this idea that it was unthinkable, that we literally can't think it. Right? it isn't, we can't think it in application to ourselves. We think that if that was so awful as to be unimaginable, then whatever it is we're doing, whatever it is our country is doing, at the time through which we're living, cannot be the thing that we imagine. There's another way to think about the Holocaust that I think is much more important, but it's a much harder one, which some great historians of the Holocaust have, of course, talked about a lot, uh, and I'm thinking in particular of, of, of Bauman. But that idea is that this is actually something that, that humans do, and we need to face it as something that is in some way a part of, of, of our humanity, right? That the, the capacity to commit such atrocities. And not only that, but there are situations and, uh, and there have, there have been situations in, in, in human history when we have normalized such behavior to such an extent that all kinds of people were engaged in it. One of the things that, uh, that have stuck with me for years after I reported a story was I was doing a piece on Nazi hunters, I don't know, a dozen years ago. And I came across the fact that Nazi criminals were so difficult to find because after the Holocaust, they didn't generally commit crimes or otherwise stand out in any society where they landed. They were normal law-abiding individuals who killed and tortured and participated or committed mass executions because that was the normal thing at the time. And so that's an entirely different idea that we have to hold in mind. When that was happening, when the thing that we have now collectively decided is unthinkable was happening, it felt normal to its participants. And that ought to make us question that first line of defense, which is, no, this feels perfectly normal, this feels perfectly human, so they can't, it can't possibly be that awful thing. Another aspect of it is that it's much easier to imagine that really awful things, that really dark chapters in human history were masterminded or committed by evil geniuses. That's terrifying, but it's not nearly as terrifying as thinking that they were committed by stupid nobodies, that we just kind of stumbled into them and collectively committed atrocities because we kind of couldn't be bothered to know any better at the time. But if you look at the dictators of the 20th century and the contemporary autocrats, that's actually an idea that that needs to be reconsidered. Let me push on that idea just a little bit, because I agree with you on the evil geniuses concept or heuristic as a as a mistake. But sometimes I think a, a problem in this particular conversation is it's run by highly analytical people who highly prize book smarts, and so when they look around at world leaders or figures who have done terrible things and they don't see a legible form of genius, 
they tend to dismiss them. And one of the things that always strikes me about Trump on one level, and then without comparing him to these kinds of figures, these other kinds of people when I study them on another, is that what they often are is very unrestrained by some of the the normal restraints of simply human behavior. Like, to, to use just Trump as a very direct example, I don't think Trump is a political genius in the way people mean it when they use that term. But what I do think he is, is shameless and unrestrained that allows him to try strategies that other politicians would reject because the personal strain of the backlash and the opprobrium and the mockery would be too much. And you see this with like a Kellyanne Conway, like others, like in the in a kind of very like basic version, the lying, right? A lot of politicians don't like to be considered liars. And so to the extent they do lie, they try to do so in ways that are hidden with, you know, half truths and partial truths. And if they get caught, they don't like it. And maybe they stop using the term. And you have a great gloss on a on a debate Kellyanne Conway and, and Chuck Todd had, where as you put it, like the Trump administration simply believes in its right as a powerful organization to lie. And one of the things that often does strike me as a kind of, not a genius, but a difference for leaders who are able to break these kinds of conventions and often do very terrible things is that they are unrestrained by just some of the emotions and guardrails that govern most human behavior. Like the number of things that are holding me back in any social situation from just acting like a normal, comfortable person uh, is manifold. And yet, like Donald Trump will get up on a stage and act like a lunatic without two thoughts about it. And that was adapted from reality TV and was adapted for him in the Republican primary. And so I think there is something, though, that is different. And one of the things that it often makes me think is you really, in some ways, I wish we were a little bit less focused on how smart leaders were and a little bit more focused on just what kinds of sense of restraint they had, like what kinds of people they were. I think there are certain assumptions in Trump's behavior. One is kind of an assumption of what his power allows him to do. For example, it allows him to say really absurd things. It allows him to lie about the weather. Because what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to not report it? Well, you can't not report it, right? It's it's newsworthy, and because he has the biggest microphone, because he's the president, it also has real-life consequences. But also, you're an idiot if you do report it because he just lied about the weather, and you're repeating his lie. So it's 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 kind of an exercise in in, in raw power. So that's one assumption, right? One assumption is that he has the power to not restrain himself. But another assumption is perhaps about what is human nature. There's something that Trump communicates about his belief, I think, about all humans, right? And it's this is a deeply fascist idea. It's the idea that the world is rotten and that humans are rotten to the core. And so he performs that unrestrained rottenness because he believes that he's powerful enough to let it all hang out. And the thing that he lets hang out without shame is that awfulness, you know, the, the worst possible human that he can perform. Because I suspect he deeply believes that that's what humans are. Yeah, I have a line sometimes that I use that Trump has this Midas-like touch where everything he touches becomes more like himself. And by the way, that includes us in the media. Something I think about sometimes is the way that Trump's tweets and attacks push us to respond as more the thing he says we are than the thing I think we actually are. Like one of the the moments in this I always think about is, do you remember when Trump had his fake news awards on Twitter? Oh God, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and it was like one of these ridiculous, he sent out five, eventually sent out five tweets of stories he didn't like. But I remember all a lot of people in journalism saying, oh my God, you know, I, uh, like I got to get my suit pressed and my I got to rent a tux and I, it's just such an honor to even be nominated. And in that moment, Trump managed to make us more the thing that he wants us to be, which is like the opposition party to him. And so one thing that I don't I don't want to call it a genius with Trump, but again, I think it's a reality of him. And I think it's something we have to see clearly in our own institutions is that there are strategies open to someone who doesn't care how they are thought of and certainly does not care how they are thought of by elites 
that are not open to people who are more restrained by normal social convention. And Trump, I mean, if you just look at the way he tweets the use of random capitalization and caps lock, I mean, that looks a lot more like the way a lot of people write than the way, you know, most politicians political like communication does. And that gives him a, a, a kind of connection. And so like he is able to make things uglier, but I also think th- something that he's just been able to do is like sweep away a lot of aesthetic restraints and uh, like boundaries on conversations that had been imposed in a different way by, for lack of a better term, political elites that had some real upsides and of course also some downsides. And that there's just a lot of energy and potentially useful strategies in being able to try so many different things. But then it seems to me, and this seems reflected in his current weakness, it's not that he was a tactician about it. He just was this one guy who worked in this different way, and he could only be that one guy. And so now that it stopped really working for him, he doesn't have another mode. He can't move into competent governance mode for the duration of coronavirus. He's just who he is, and he can't escape that prison. And so it works when it works, and it fails when it fails. But in some ways, the lessons of him, to me, are that there are a lot of ways to be in politics. And if you can like emotionally sustain it, you can do things that a lot of political elites had previously comforted themselves as, you know, in, into believing were not doable or were not survivable. Well, you know, I think it actually goes to to his very idea of what politics have been and what he is rebelling against. Politics, American politics, on a fundamental level, have always been as aspirational. Like we're faking being a better country than we are until we become a somewhat better country than we were yesterday, to put it very crudely. And along comes Donald Trump, who, and there's this, you know, this great uh, phrase by Hannah Arendt, um, throwing off the, ma- the mask of hypocrisy. The, this is the way she described part of the appeal of fascism. Sort of the people who come into the political establishment like a bull into a china shop and just start smashing things. And it feels incredibly liberating because, yes, it is true that a lot of politics is hypocritical, right? A lot of politics is performance. A lot of politics is pretending that things are better than they are, or at least they could be better, right? And it's the language that we use. It is the suits that people wear. It's, it's the gowns that Supreme Court justices wear, and on and on and on. There, there are lots, of, a lot of ways in which we perform aspiration in politics. That we make things feel important. That we add a kind of dignity through language and performance and and, and visuals. And Trump is smashing all of that. Right. Uh, and really, like on all levels, on the levels of language, on the level of spelling, on the level of of aesthetics, including dress, all of that has taken on an entirely different look and feel. And it's a rebellion against that aspiration. And I think it's it's incredibly scary and just plain heartbreaking. Right? It is it is so much better to live in a country that where politics, we're an integral part of politics, is just trying to make ourselves a better society. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. 
Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Why isn't Donald Trump more popular? You know, I don't know how popular he is, Ezra. I think you're probably much, much better versed in in the ways of, of polls and, 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 and measures. But I just have this really horrible, nagging feeling that we're trying to use you know, the metric system or a system of three-dimensional measures to measure something that's that exists in a two-dimensional universe. And maybe it's partly the trauma of the of the 2016 election, where polling, you know, it wasn't that far off, but sort of the conclusions that we drew from polling were 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 really far off. But partly I think it's 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 my basic doubt that we can comprehend the workings of the Trumpian universe or that we can measure them and describe them by using the, the language and, and, and measures of, an, of the non-autocratic universe. But, but let me push back on that idea just a little bit, and, and not so much in defense of polling, which, as you say, if it becomes a little wrong, it becomes entirely wrong because, you know, elections are, they have, they have binary outcomes, as we learned, but in this way, which is, I think sometimes there's a, a tendency to believe Donald Trump is freed from a lot of normal kinds of political gravity. And as such, and if you believe that and you don't look at him and say, well, you know, he's been a lot less popular than you'd expect a politician with a good economy until a couple of months ago to be. And he's been, you know, he lost the popular vote in 2016 in an election where it was clearly possible for Republicans to win the popular vote. Then I think there's a tendency to really want to mimic him. And, you know, one one interesting version I think we're seeing play out right now is actually Joe Biden. I think sort of in your book, actually, but but across a, a wide range of commentary, there's been a belief that Trump will have to be opposed by something equal and opposite. Um, there's a line of a lot of Democrats in the primary. You can't just be not Trump. Um, you have to create an energy, a clarity, uh, a, something that is able to take the, the primal forces he showed are so powerful and redirect them. And like, here's Joe Biden running the exact opposite campaign of all that, functionally running as generic Democrat not making that much news, not allowing himself to become like the, the anti-Trump, just allowing sort of Trump to take up the oxygen and get buried underneath his own, um, his, the, the reality he has helped construct here with coronavirus and the economy. And it seems to be working reasonably well. And and I bring that up in this context simply because I think sometimes the the tendency to attribute powers to Trump beyond what we can actually see in the polling or in his successes or lack thereof actually make him look better at politics than he is. And it's the politicians. And one of the things the politicians who seem to be able to oppose him well seem to get is that you don't act like him. You act unlike him because his approach does have really profound limits. Well, I guess it depends on what problem we're trying to solve. Right. If we're trying to solve the problem of uh, getting elected in November, then it may very well be true that the best thing to do to win at the polls in November is to run as a potted plant, right? which is the exact opposite of, of, of Donald Trump, and which is pretty cl- close to what Joe Biden has been doing. If we're trying to solve the bigger political problem of what gave us Donald Trump and what will allow us to recover from Donald Trump, then what's at issue is much more than 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 winning the election in November. And what I mean is that, you know, I don't believe that Donald Trump was an alien from outer space or a Russian agent installed against the the will of of, of the American public. Right? Donald Trump was a president elected by Americans to lead this country for reasons that live here in this country. Which is not to say that he was predetermined, but also that he he's not an alien from outer space. And I think that these reasons have to be addressed, right? The allure of the imaginary past that Trump brings to politics 
is something that works in times of extreme uncertainty, displacement, anxiety. And I think that the only thing that you can opposed to it politically is a vision of a glorious future. But again, I'm not talking about necessarily the recipe for, for winning in November, right? The recipe for winning in November may well be doing nothing. But the recipe for, for repairing our politics, I think, is creating a vision of a glorious future, a sense that a lot of us most of us will be able to wake up in, you know, 5, 15, 25 years and feel pretty good about where we're living and how we're living. One of the things your book has that a lot of these don't is a, is a deep, both comparative grounding um, in the work you did in, in, in Russia, but also just uh, a kind of sense of autocrats as, an, as a historical and international phenomenon. And when you look at places that have struggled with this kind of politics before, you know, what I would call like a nostalgic bigoted um, politics of scarcity. What have been, in your view, the very successful cases? Like when you when you look and you you hope for America to follow the path of X, is there a country or a time period that stands in as X for you? Well, actually, surprisingly enough, um, we're going right back to Eastern Central Europe in 1989. And there were people, particularly in Poland, who actually came to 1989 with a vision of what a country could be like. And an, uh, an entire political life that had taken shape in parallel to the totalitarian regime that had imposed martial law in 1981. And this was, this was the trade union movement, the intellectuals in Warsaw, who followed this idea that was first put forward in Czechoslovakia in the late 1970s, that you can build a model of a future, a working model of a future, and then when totalitarianism collapsed under its own weight, you could step into the space that had suddenly been left wake, vacant and realize this vision. So I think that's what, that's what happened in Poland 30 years ago. We don't know what's going to happen in Poland now. It hasn't been uh, at its best for the last five years, but you know, even if 25 years of sort of building an ex a fairly exemplary democracy in in Central Europe is is not a small thing as recoveries from from extreme totalitarian politics the politics of 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 scarcity and, and, and xenophobia I want to talk about something in the language section of your book a little bit more because I think it relates to this conversation there, there's an argument that postmodern discourse, Lack of a single truth is what led to Trump, and and, and I, I probably thought about it because of your your talk about the glorious future, like an argument that as liberals fractured the idea, or leftists, or someone, academics maybe fractured the idea of like history with an arc and one set of facts, and we could just know what was true. That that created the explosion of subjectivity that then Donald Trump and fake news and alternative facts came into. And I think you have a, a kind of usefully subtle like take on this, that there are ways in which you can use subjectivity to get towards truth and, and, and away from it. I want to see if you would talk a little bit about it, because that strikes me as one of actually the important subterranean debates that's going to come up after Trump. Um, like what, what kinds of knowing are still viable in politics? This is something that we heard quite a bit right after the 2016 election. There was a kind of hand-wringing argument that postmodernism had done this to us, that all the academic talk about how there was no single meaning, there was no single truth, nothing was knowable, had created the post-truth situation where nothing means anything. And I think that's a real of perversion of the subjectivity project, right? Um, I think that the critical theorists of the 20th century were struggling with the imperfections of language, with most of them at least, possibly all of them, fundamentally believing in the possibility of a shared reality not necessarily in the objective knowability of the shared reality, but that if we kept comparing and negotiating and explaining our subjective 
perceptions of the world, we would get ever closer to understanding one another, which is an essential part of politics, right? And when I say politics, um, you know, I always mean the process of deciding how we inhabit a world, a city, a state, a nation, a planet together. And for that, you need a sense of shared reality. You need an ability to say, we take certain things to exist. We are going to use certain words to describe them. And then we're going to try to reach an understanding. And this is something that Trump consistently undermines. You have a Hannah Arendt quote here that I had not come across before, but I loved and I want to read so we can talk about it a bit. Quoting here, if someone wants to see and experience the world as it really is, he can do so only by understanding it as something that is shared by many people, lies between them, separates and links them, showing itself differently to each and comprehensible only to the extent that many people can talk about it and exchange their opinions and perspectives with one another over and against one another. And something that struck me about that quote is it holds that the key enemy of truth-seeking is not admitting the essential nature of subjectivity and perspective, but losing the conditions in which subjectivity and perspectives can collide with each other constructively, losing the conditions for for discourse and, and for dialogue. Does that, does that seem right to you? Absolutely. I think the central object of her study was what happens to society when there's too much distance, not enough distance, right? The difference, and um, perhaps it's just because I've been thinking about this so much during the pandemic, right? Her ideas about loneliness versus isolation versus solitude. But it is so important in her thinking that people think with one another. And in order to think with one another, they also have to feel their separateness from one another. You have to be an individual capable of forming an opinion and expressing it and exchanging it and seeing the reflection of your ideas in the eyes of others in order to continue thinking and in order for, for politics to take shape. Do you think we're we're losing that? And here I'm not just asking about the, the Trump side of it. There's a continuous critique the left is losing that, that maybe they appreciate the importance of subjectivity and perspective but not in a way that leads to to dialogue and discourse. Instead, there is a tendency to rely on subjectivity and perspective as a kind of signal of truth itself or a kind of hidden knowledge. Do you do you buy that critique? You know, I think it's 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 an important risk to to bear in mind. I think that more often than not, when that critique is actually applied, it is applied unconvincingly. Uh, most often it is because whoever sees sort of a conversation as monolithic is actually failing to see the many different arguments. This is a conversation that's been happening over the last month or so between somebody like, you know, Andrew Sullivan, who says that there's no longer room for debate, and somebody like Wesley Lowry, who um, suggests that we should replace the concept of objectivity in journalism with the concept of moral clarity, an idea that I actually agree with. But when Sullivan and many, many other people who hold to that kind of uh, perspective, I think when they're looking at the ideas that have suddenly come in from the margins and become subjects of mainstream debate, they're so new to them that they strike them as dogmatic and monolithic. When in fact, there's a huge difference between, for example, people who argue for defunding the police and people who argue for abolishing the police. A distinction that I suspect a lot of these critics are incapable of perceiving because both ideas are completely new to them. And because there's, uh, they're reeling from the shock of seeing the debate expand to include these ideas that, that they were not previously exposed to. Again, which is, it's not to say that, uh, that the danger doesn't exist on the left. It very much does. And I have a sense that I have even personally experienced it. But I think if I dissect any of the, of the pieces that I have read actually accusing people of, of, of being dogmatic in that way on the left, it generally comes from a failure to, uh, to understand the, the, the details and subtleties of the debate. 
Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. There's a an idea Rebecca Traster talks about sometimes, a great writer at New York Magazine, that she calls discernibility, that when there's change, right, change from a social movement, change in, in, in ideas, that the violence of, the downsides of, the potential injustices of this new group or new regime are extremely discernible. You can really see them. Um, and, and, and yet that, that what's in the status quo or what is um, embedded in regimes that are in power becomes undiscernible, like that, that kind of violence becomes somewhat invisible. And, you know, she uses the example of it's often very hard for a society, certainly for American society, to recognize police violence as violence. It often cloaks itself as order. Whereas if a protest emerges to police violence and there's violence in it, that is seen as violence and seen as disorder. And the point there is not to give a license to any kind of violence that might happen at a protest, but it's to say that it's really important to, to know if you're seeing something new or you're seeing something that has been here all along and it's simply moved a little bit. Like I've been thinking about this a lot in, in the idea space, this idea that there's an argument out there that the idea space has become much more contracted. There are all these things you used to be able to say, and now you can't. And that doesn't really seem true to me, that it just seems to me the idea space has changed. Like 15 years ago, you probably couldn't talk about in any serious way police abolition or even really defunding uh, the New York Times op-ed page. Um, but Tom Cotton's op-ed could have run without a problem. And today, you can talk about police abolition and defunding, and Tom Cotton's op-ed can't run without a problem. And it's not clear to me the idea space is contracted at all. It might be bigger, but what fits within it without dispute is simply different. But there were always things that were being edged out and things that were being pulled in and fought over. It's just, you know, when all of a sudden it's the things you believe that are being pushed out and the things you don't believe that are being pulled in, all of a sudden the uh, the fact that the discourse has always had boundaries becomes discernible to you in a way it wasn't when you never ran up a foul of them. I agree. I mean, um, I would pick up on, on two strands there. First of all, actually, I think that the idea space has expanded in both directions. I actually don't think that the Tom Cotton op-ed op could have run a few years ago. Oh, that's interesting. I, I think the idea of sending in the military to break up protests would have sounded completely insane. Right? I think that we perceive it as kind of l less surprising 
even if more shocking, is because it does express the position of the state as the state is currently currently represented by Donald Trump. And so it's the tension is still between kind of the establishment position and a position that's perceived as marginal, such as you know the idea of, of abolishing the police. But the establishment position has also moved a lot. And the establishment position is radical in, in, in its own way. So that's that's one strand I would pick up on. The, and the other is that I think of it more as what we accept as the natural order of things that is being changed. The existence of the police is the natural order of things. And defunding the police, abolishing the police, introducing an alternative to the police, all of those things are new because we perceive the police as almost non-negotiable, right? And so we, um, it's always been there, like, like the sky and the water and the trees. And so changing it is an incredibly radical idea. Or to give maybe a, an easier example, uh, it's the current argument about history. The idea that seeing American history as a history of enslavement, as a consistent history of unfreedom, is so radical because seeing it as a history of freedom is the natural order of things. So we're not seeing it as two competing narratives that can perhaps actually combine to create a very complicated story. We're seeing it as the natural order of things and a challenge to it. Is this in a way a, what is the right word for this? I don't want, <laughs> the word that came to mind is blessing, and that's not the one I want to use, but a, an, an advantage of Donald Trump in that he takes things that have always been there in the American psyche, but have often been dressed up in a suit and tie, have often been cloaked in establishment validation have often not been that discernible as disorder, as white supremacy, as bigotry, as illiberalism. And because of fundamentally, I think, actually the aesthetic with which he expresses him, he makes him easier to see. And so things that have been laced through our institutions, but are often not seen as not seen for what they are, are a little bit easier to see for what they are when he is the one speaking them because he is so likely often to take their subtext and make it the text, to take a dog whistle and make it a foghorn. Like, is that a way in which it, there's at least been something, I don't exactly want to say healthy, but constructive about the, 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 the challenge of Donald Trump? I don't know. I think I rather think of him as destructive. And I think that where he destroys things down to their very foundations, uh, there's a kind of opportunity that arises to build something new. And so in that sense, he, he does create political opportunity. But I'm hesitant to say that he exposes the nature of things. I think that there's an important distinction between the fatal flaw and the nature of things. I think that in the moral aspiration of American politics, there has always been a fatal flaw. But I think that basically saying that there has never been moral aspiration that is entirely invalidated by the, by the fatal flaw, that the nature of things was solely rotten, that's pure destruction. That is the this, this, this sort of idea, uh, the, the throwing off the mask of hypocrisy that I'm deeply suspicious of. But, but let me push on this just a little bit in this way. So immigration, I think, is a, is a useful example here. Maybe the word I'm looking for is sanitized. The immigration debate is one where it is often sanitized into a debate about economics a debate about labor market outcomes for native-born high school dropouts, when that's not really what is motivating anybody in the debate. If you're worried about labor market outcomes for native-born high school dropouts, like there's a lot of ways to fix that directly. And Trump comes along and he says what it is actually about. There are a lot of people in this country who do not want to see it become browner. And he's perfectly clear about that. 
You know, he talks about shithole countries. And and so in some ways, we can actually have what is the real immigration debate, which is not about like George Borjas's work out at Harvard versus David Card's work, but is actually about this question of like, what, 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 what do you want to see be true in this country? And I see this too with a lot of the George W. Bush versus Donald Trump comparisons, where particularly to a lot of folks, Bush looks a lot better in retrospect. And yet there's a tremendous amount of violence and damage done by his administration. In, in many ways, I think he was a much more damaging president than Trump, at least until coronavirus had been. Um, we'll see what, what, what the outcome of that is. But because just Bush was better at playing by the rhetorical rules of politics, it often didn't get seen as such. You know, Ezra, I, I can completely see myself making that argument if, if our positions were switched. And still, I think there's, there, there's an important distinction between a Trump and a Bush. I think that pretending to be better than you are, that knowing that exposing the underlying racism of your thinking uh, and desires is shameful, is important. It's an important constraining factor in life and politics. It's, you know, it's a difficult thing to praise, but getting rid of it is not exposing the um, you know, the true nature of things is just making things worse. And I think I, I talk about this in the book. I think there are two ways to tell the Trump story, and they're both true. One of which is the much more common story of like Trump as an anomaly, Trump as something that's that's completely antithetical to, to American political culture and history. And the other, much less common, but I think best articulated probably by somebody like, like Corey Robin, who really sees him as yet another Republican president. But I think we only get at what actually happened by telling both of those stories at the same time. He is like a quantum leap from a running start. We laid the groundwork for Trump, including you know, laying the groundwork for Trump's immigration policies um, by all the conversations that have happened around immigration since 1980, you know, under Reagan and, and Bush Sr., and certainly Bill Clinton, uh, and then Bush Jr., and then finally Trump, right? Um, and the, you know, the vast deportations, um, un under Obama. All of that made it possible to have that, uh, to, to, to have the wall become a reality. And it also required Trump, who is unlike any president we've ever had. I think that's a really important point that these stories can be can be true at the same time. I think it's something we actually do quite poorly in journalism sometimes. But I, I want before we we close out to talk a, for a couple minutes about coronavirus because something that is being tested out now is how vulnerable Donald Trump is to the reality around us and and to that of his administration. And it's clear that sort of coronavirus is building as you finish the book. It's sort of laced through the analysis at different points. And, and the end is quite pessimistic that Donald Trump might actually be helped by coronavirus harming the economy and creating a, a, a deep state of anxiety. And I remember that sort of period in the polls where he was going up despite obviously mishandling this. And, and since then, this seems to have really turned on him. Um, in the 538 polling, he's currently down by 9.6 points. There seems to be a vulnerability to the outcomes of his own mismanagement, at least in a time of crisis, that the mismanagement isn't comforting, but the fact that there's still some interaction between reality and election is comforting. So I'm curious how you read that now, or if you think this is a false dawn, like what, what, your, what your take is on, on, on that interaction. You know, I try not to be uh, a, f a fortune teller. I think that that's uh, that's unbecoming of journalists. But also, you'll always be remembered for the predictions that didn't come true. I wish it were November now. Uh, I mean, things are looking pretty great right now. But but I think there are a whole host of variables before November, and so I I am really afraid of of getting complacent. I'm incredibly hopeful because of the pro protests. Right. I think the protests actually embody so much of what I express, express hope for in the book, which is, which is a, a really future-oriented, radical, visionary politics. But again, we're a long way from November. As far as the effect of the, of the mishandling of, of the coronavirus crisis by Trump, there, um, 
And what I try to say in the book is that we need to be very careful about applying, again, the normal laws of physics to Donald Trump, who is behaving like an autocrat, even if he hasn't yet built an autocracy here. Autocrats generally benefit from, from, from times of scarcity. The more anxious people are, the less likely they are to vote for change, even if their lives are horrible. Right. So that to me would, is an argument for reading his approval ratings very, very cautiously. The import of those figures may actually be not exactly what we think it is because different laws of physics apply in the autocratic universe. So I'm just, I'm just really cautious. And, you know, there, there are certain things that are, that are uncanny and scary about the, the pandemic condition, which is that when we talk about authoritarianism, which is not a term that I would ever have applied to, to, to Trumpism because authoritarianism, uh, usually where, where I come from, is used as the opposite of totalitarianism, where totalitarianism is the, the kind of um, regime that makes everything political, that eliminates the, uh, the private sphere, that gets everybody out to the public square to demonstrate their support for the, for the great leader, right? That's very much where Trump would like to be. Whereas authoritarianism is where politics disappears entirely. Everybody is at home cooking dinner and, 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 and growing vegetables. And one man or a group of people are running a country and accumulating money and power while nobody is looking. And the pandemic has created conditions that until the protests resembled textbook, a textbook model of authoritarianism without Trump having to do much to, uh, to contribute to it. Another thing that the coronavirus has done is it has created the conditions of terror. Right? This is not terror that's inflicted by the state, but it is terror in sort of the most classic sense, which is that it is a credible threat of harm that applies to every person in this country at all times. Right? And we're all living with that. And that's, that's, that's a political condition that we're completely unfamiliar with in, in a democracy. And it changes things, and among other things, it should change the way that we understand polling numbers and, and even what a vote means. That sounded really ominous. That is a good, I like ending on the, on the, on the ominous note. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that um, this is going to be a vote that means different things than it normally does. So let me uh, end with the, the question we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you have read that have influenced you that you would recommend? So... I would recommend actually two books by Balint Magyar, whom I mentioned, who is a Hungarian sociologist, a former member of the the post-communist Hungarian government, who returned to academia after Orban came to power and um, and has done just incredible, incredible work. So one book is uh, called the uh, the post-communist mafia state. You can disregard the words post-communist in the in in the in the title. And read about the mafia state. It is incredibly readable and scarily accurate in the way that it describes a clan-like government that surrounds a single patron uh, who distributes money and power. And the other book of his, which is his new book that's coming out this summer that I would recommend, it has the word autocracy in the title. I think it's post-communist autocracies. Again, drop the post-communist, read the book. It's a thousand pages. But you can read it in chunks. It's uh, um, it it provides a kind of blueprint for understanding um, autocracies. Masha Gessen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Masha Gessen for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein shows of Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>